بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله الذي العظيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وآله الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم أخرجني من ظلمات الوهم وأكرمني بنور الفهم اللهم افتح علينا أبواب رحمتك وانشر علينا خزائن علومك برحمتك يا أرحم الراحمين Inshallah, in this course, we are going to study Aqaid based on the book Islamic Belief System. Before I discuss the first lesson, I should give you an idea about the book, which is part of a project. Based on our experiences and uh, different encounters we had with our community in different countries, whether it be by traveling or having students from different places in Qom, uh, we came to this conclusion that we need to have a package of five books that would address everything that uh, Shia must know about Islam at a level which suits people who want to go to universities, people who want to start a job, people who want to get married, so like college level. So with a group we started this project. We first drafted the outline for Aqaid one, which is Islamic belief system. And almost, we had, I actually had, maybe there were more, but I myself were in 30 sessions just designing the outline of the first book. And then we designed other books. And then we started writing down and testing it. But before even writing down, uh, I showed the outline to many, many people in different countries to get their feedback. Then we started offering the book. The first experience was in Tanzania, Muharram, two years ago. We sent two scholars there to teach the Islamic teachers in Kebaha, in Vipas. And then we had it in different places. I had myself in Stanmore, in Islamic Center, in Birmingham, in Toronto, in Hamburg, and then later in Michigan. So we had it in many places, and brothers had uh, in different places, and some sisters. So Alhamdulillah, last January, then we published a book. So we offered it in uh, kind of photocopied version uh, so that we get the feedback. We didn't want to rush. After two years, then we printed. Uh, still, I'm sure there are many things to improve, but now at least it's something that uh, relatively it's uh, satisfactory. So this is Islamic belief system, which is our textbook for this particular course. And this covers aqaid apart from imam. For Imama, we have a separate book. Uh, 
and that is to give us two benefits. One is to make Islamic belief system a book that can be used by Sunni Muslims as well. Because when you discuss about Tawheed or Nabuwa or Ma'ad, then or anthropology, so Sunni Shia can be the same. There are differences, but uh, differences can be within the same madhab as well. So it's not that all the Sunni brothers have this approach to Tawheed, but uh, it can be acceptable to some of them. <coughs> so one advantage of putting Imam for separate book was to make this book uh, for all Muslims, as we have done it with the book Islamic Plan for Life, which I will explain later. The other advantage was that for Imama we could expand because Imama and issues related to Imama are very important for Shia Muslims. So it was not uh, possible to do justice to have one just chapter. So we have a separate book on Imama. And then uh, Islamic plan for life, which covers akhlaq and Islamic code of behavior and then Islamic culture and civilization. We have also a book on Ahkam and a book on history of the Shia, starting with the demise of the Prophet وسلم, continuing to the contemporary age, highlighting the lives of Imams, but after the time of Ghaybah started, the role of ulama in leading the Shia community. So this is five books, Islamic belief system, Islamic plan for life, the book on Imamat, history of the Shia, and Ahkam. Two of them for all Muslims, Sunni and Shia, that is Islamic belief system and Islamic plan for life, three of them for the Shia. When we started the project, we planned it to be for like A-level, college level. But because uh, it's not that people have been through very good, uh, you know, designed courses of aqaid or other subjects before, so sometimes uh, we find that it's too difficult for not only college level, even for some teachers, or even in some places we have been teaching this to muballighin and to scholars. But inshallah, if we do well, in lower levels, in madrasa. So this would be the level that all our youth should be knowing when they are 17, 18. And then we can go to the adv more advanced level. Uh, I just give you an outline of Islamic belief system for the other books. I'm not going to give you the outline now, but if you are interested, uh, I have uh, some lectures online on introduction to the new syllabus and you can find it just for islamic belief system it's designed in the way that covers main subjects of aqaid and some contemporary issues but also prepare the mind for the second book which is islamic plan for life so people who study the first book then would realize that why we should follow Islamic plan for life. 
Therefore, there are subjects in this book which is not normally covered in Aqaid book, like the last unit on felicity, on sa'adah, on happiness, which is not normally in Aqaid book, but we thought it's very necessary to have it here. I will explain, and inshallah you will see. So it covers most of Aqaid topics, and that is apart from Imama, but also some additional topics. When we were planning, we thought perhaps we can learn this lesson from the Quran that before we actually get into the arguments about the existence of God, we should reflect on the creation, the creation, this world around us. You know, the Quran in many places invites us to reflect on the signs of God in creation. Quran asks us to reflect on the creation of the camels. Or for example, uh, mountains, a sky, earth, different types of animals, even our own creation. So we thought this is a very uh, Quranic and at the same time logical approach that you first tune your mind by reflecting on the wonders that exist in this world. So the first unit of the book, inshallah you will see, is purely scientific. We don't talk about anything related to religion. It's only scientific. And the idea is to demonstrate by scientific data order that exists in the world, harmony, complexity, and glory of the creation. So first unit normally we don't teach. We ask the students to read by themselves. But it's very important. So my request is for the next week, everyone should have studied the first unit and also the beginning of second unit. But it's very important, although we are not going to teach it here because it's a very uh, easy reading text and it's only scientific. But uh, I expect everyone would read it and come to the class next week, inshallah. So we start Aqaid from the second unit. And second unit is about knowing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or you may call it theology. Because theology means knowing God. Theos means God. And logi comes from logos, which means intellect, means to know. So it's knowing God. So the second unit is about knowing God. It has an introduction and then starts with some arguments for the existence of God. We, inshallah, will study three major arguments for the existence of God. One is the argument from design, what we traditionally call it Burhan and Adam. In the West, they know it as argument from design. The other is argument based on the innate knowledge that we have, fitra, the innate knowledge that we have. And the third is 
cosmological argument or what we call it traditionally burhanul wujub wal imkan cosmological argument so we will have these three arguments for the existence of god and then after that we will talk about attributes or qualities or sifat of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we will have a discussion about how to classify them there are different ways to classify divine attributes for example one way is to divide them into attributes of beauty sifatul jamal and attributes of glory sifatul jalal or affirmative attributes and negational attributes or attributes of essence attributes of action sifatul zat sifatul fil so inshallah we'll talk about these different types of attributes of allah which help a lot in understanding better Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Of course, we can never understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, in the way that He knows Himself or the Prophet and Ma'sumin know Him, but at least we can improve our understanding of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as much as we can. And then we talk about some particular attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala which are very important. One is Allah's knowledge, His ilm, His knowledge. And then we will discuss how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows everything and how he knows in particular what is going to happen in future, how he knows particular things. We talk about Allah's power. We talk, inshallah, about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's wisdom and justice. And here we will pause and we will talk about the issue of catastrophes and tragedies that take place in the world the problem of evil this is very important question many people ask if there is god who has knowledge who has power who is benevolent why so many problems in the world is it because he cannot stop them so his power is limited or it's because he doesn't want to stop them or he doesn't know about them or he doesn't exist so this is a question that some people ask and inshallah we will clarify uh, and make it very clear that uh, these problems are uh, the outcomes and logical implications of having a world like this which actually also serve the ultimate purpose of having a world like this inshallah we'll explain this then we'll talk about some of the attributes of god which are negational, salbi. I am hesitant to say negative. They are not negative. They are negational. It means they are not affirmative. For example, we say God has no parts. God does not occupy any space or time. God is not visible. So these are the attributes which are, in a sense, negating some deficiencies and impurities or shortcomings or weaknesses from God. By negating these limitations, we are actually affirming greatness of God and perfection of God. We will also talk, inshallah, about the relationship between God and the world. This is very important. Uh, normally, this is not discussed in the book of Aqa'id, at least the books which are available but this is very important because i have seen some people uh, among muslims and many times non-muslims 
they think God of Islam is so transcendent that it's difficult to relate to it, to God. Because, you know, we always say is, uh, God is beyond your understanding. God is not, you know, uh, a human being. God is not, a, for example, even, inshallah, you will see God is not subject to, for example, happiness or grief, this type of, you know, thing. God does not change. So some people say then this God is too abstract and too transcendent and too far from us compared to people who uh, have God, for example, in the form of a human being, for example, you know, like, for example, God has revealed himself in the form of his son, Jesus, and Jesus is a human being, although he has a divine nature, but he's also a human being, so you can understand God then better, or, for example, other forms of uh, understanding God, like, you know, pantheism, that they say everything is God. Anyway, inshallah we'll explain that although God is transcendent and is immaterial, but he is very near to us. At the same time that the Quran says, there is nothing like, like him. But at the same time, the Quran says, God is closer to us than our jugular vein. God is standing between us and our heart. So it means even closer to us than our own heart. So we want to explain the relation between God and the world. And also we will clarify very important concept here. And this is the concept of lordship, Rububiyya. What does it mean that God is our Lord, our Rabb? After finishing this unit about knowing God or theology, then we will talk about one of the creatures created by God, and that is human beings. If God is the creator, so he has created everything. Among those things which are created by God, human beings stand out. They are created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for a special purpose. And that is to be the vicegerent of God on the earth. So we need to know more about human beings, especially because we are also human beings. So we need to know more about ourselves and about our relation with God. So this unit, which is unit three, will study the way human beings are made of body and soul, or body and spirit. Here we use soul and body interchangeably. We are not just a physical body. You shouldn't understand yourself as a physical object which occupies space, which weighs, I don't know, 40, 50, 60, 100 kilograms, and is going to perish, to be destroyed, to be ruined. We are made of body and soul. And actually, it's the soul which makes our real self. Our real self is not made by our body. Our body can change. Our body is subject to loss. But the soul remains intact. Even the soul survives death. Body does not survive death necessarily. So we will prove immateriality of the soul. 
We will bring arguments to prove that our soul is immaterial, is not material. We will talk about the theory of evolution to explain that Islamically, theory of evolution, although it's not a scientifically proved theory, still there are question marks on it, but Islamically we don't have any problem with theory of evolution. And even we think that the theory of evolution can be one way of explaining the way God has created the world. God can create the world in the way which evolves or create the, the way which doesn't e evolve. So we don't have any problem with this and there is nothing in uh, Islam that would conflict fundamentally with this theory. But we think that when it comes to this particular generation or line of human beings, starting with Adam, we think that the Quran suggests that we are not product of evolution. We are product of Allah's direct and immediate creation of this line of human beings from Adam and Eve. But in our hadith, we have evidence that there were other human beings before this line which comes from Adam and Eve. Maybe there were, according to some hadith, thousands of Adam before this Adam. So we don't have any problem with theory of evolution. Inshallah, we'll explain this later. So what is Islamic understanding of theory of evolution is another topic. Then we will talk about some aspects of man's creation, about human mind, about human fitrah, about human dignity. We will talk about different types of desires that exist in human beings. Although we have physical desires, but it's not only physical desires that we have, we have other types of desires, and we have you know, psychological desires, we have intellectual desires, we have spiritual desires, and we need to meet uh, those needs which are related to these desires as well, not only focus on meeting physical needs and satisfying physical desires. A very important discussion in this unit is about free will. Human beings are created as free beings. They can choose between good and bad, between right and wrong. They can choose what sort of people they want to become. A horse cannot decide to become a better horse or, I don't know, a wicked horse, for example. They are not possible, uh, possibly changing. But human beings have free will, have responsibility, have ability to make themselves better, to upgrade themselves or to degrade themselves. So we will talk about these. We will talk about two important issues at the end of the unit. And one is about race. What is the position of race in Islam? We will talk about equality of all races in humanity, according to Islam. We are all human beings, and belonging to a particular race would not add to your humanity or reduce your humanity. Every human being from any ethnic background, from any race origin, 
is complete in humanity. In humanity, we are complete. Whether we are good human beings or not, it's not decided by your race. It's the personal choice. So race would not determine whether you are a good human being or a bad human being, whether you are a noble human being or not a noble. And the same is with gender. Being man or woman would not mean that you are a good person or a bad person, or for example, you are a first class or second class human being, you are a complete human being or incomplete human being. It's again everyone's personal choice, personal efforts, personal determination that would define what type of human being he or she is. So this is end of unit two. Then we will talk about the way. You see, everything will flow logically. The way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, our creator, has provided human beings and of course jinns with guidance now that we have such great capacity for change and if we take care of it we can become better and better without limitation and if we don't care of ourselves we can become worse and worse without limitation now we want to see what type of guidance our creator has provided us with in order to make sure that we can always progress so the unit four is about prophethood we will talk about different types of guidance you know we have general guidance a principle in the quran is inclusive all embracing guidance when musa and harun were asked by pharaoh Waman rabbukuma ya musa O Musa, who is the Lord of you two? Rabbu Kuma. Yeah? Kuma means for two people. Because Musa and Harun went to Pharaoh. So he says, O Musa, who is your Lord? Musa salam said, Rabbuna alladhi a'ata kulla shay'in khalqahu thumma hada. Our Lord is the one who gave everything its due creation. And then guided. So everything created by God is guided. It's not only human beings. Even insects. Even plants. And in a sense, even non-living beings. They are all guided. Moon and stars. Planets. Even uh, electrons, protons. Everything is guided. This is a Quranic principle. Alladhi a'ata. So, creation comes with guidance. This is general guidance. But in addition to this general guidance, we human beings have been given extra guidance, additional guidance, through two things. One is our intellect, reason, okay? Of course, when I say intellect or reason and refer here, it doesn't mean that intellect is in the uh, head. 
because this is the brain, it's not the intellect, but just for the sake of understanding. So one is our intellect, the other is revelation. So we have extra guidance other than what we share with animals and plants and whatsoever. For example, you know, we share our instincts with animals. But in addition to this, we have revelation and intellect or reason, two of them. Islam, especially in the school of Ahlul Bayt, we very much emphasize on both aql and wahi being hujjah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You may remember this beautiful hadith of Imam Qadim salam, in which he tells Hisham ibn Hakam about intellect, about knowledge. This is in Usul al-Kafi, the very first section of Usul al-Kafi, Kitab al-Aql wal In the beginning, there is this beautiful hadith for many pages. Imam Qadim alayhi salam in that hadith says, Inna lillaha ta'ala ala nas hujjatain. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has two hujjah, two ways of conveying his will to us. One is hujjatan zahirah. The external hujjah, and that is anbiya, rasul, a'imma. These are the external hujjah. These are outside us, and they teach us, they guide us. And there is hujjah batina, and that is internal hujjah, and that is aql. So aql is the hujjah inside us, and anbiya and imams are the hujjah outside us. Some ulama have put it in this way. They say aql is indeed an internal prophet. Yeah? If you wanted to invite prophet to yourself, to your very being, your, the prophet would become your aql. And if you want to bring aql outside and you want to have an embodiment of aql, it would be the prophet. Okay? So not only we don't have any conflict, any contradiction between reason and revelation, indeed we believe these two are very much confirming each other, supporting each other, helping each other, because they are both hujjah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's impossible that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would tell us something through one hujjah which would contradict what he says to us through another hujjah. If someone has two ways of communicating and he is a wise person, he would communicate the same thing through different channels, not that he would con communicate in different ways. So, we will talk about, inshallah, the harmony between reason and revelation. We will talk about conscience. What about conscience? What about wajdan? Is our conscience also hujjah? Can we rely on our understanding in our heart or no? Inshallah, we will talk about it and we will say that although human conscience is very important and we are inspired by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to understand what is good or bad, but unfortunately, this is subject to change. If you 
keep listening to your conscience, the voice of conscience becomes clearer and stronger. If you ignore the messages coming, instructions coming from your conscience, the voice becomes more ambiguous and weaker and it can totally stop. And then if you keep doing bad things and ignoring your conscience, actually the conscience may then shift into a situation in which it would inspire you to do bad things. And it would make you feel good when you do bad things. A person who is still in the God-given state of conscience, when he does bad things, he feels bad. He would be blaming himself or herself. But if you keep doing bad things, and if you ignore your conscience and fight the voice of conscience, it becomes weaker and weaker, and then it will become opposite. So you do bad things, and you don't feel any bad. You enjoy Unfortunately, some people reach the position that when they do bad things, when they kill people, they torture people, they make people suffer, they don't feel bad. Actually, they enjoy. If there is a day that they cannot deceive some people or they cannot, I don't know, harm some people, they cannot, I don't know, laugh at some people and you know, ridicule them, they feel bad. So conscience is very important but it is not fixed. Therefore, it is not a hodja. You have to check what goes on in your heart against aql and revelation. Okay? Then we will talk, inshallah, about characteristics of the prophets, some of the qualities of the prophets. And in particular, we will talk about their knowledge. And we will tell, inshallah, that prophets in addition to the normal knowledge that we have, to the conventional knowledge that we have, they have some sort of God-given knowledge, what we call ilm al-ladunni, something which comes from God, not from a teacher or from a school or from reading a book. They have some special access to the treasure of knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We will talk about prophets' willpower, which is very important. Azm, determination. You know, according to some hadith, we have 124,000 prophets. The Quran doesn't say this number, but according to some hadith, we have had 124,000 prophets. Among these 124,000 prophets, how many are Rasul? Rasul means apostle, messenger. Nabi, 124,000. Rasul, 313. Okay? So among 124,000, we have only 313 Rasul. What is the difference between Rasul and Nabi? Inshallah, we'll explain then. But every Rasul is Nabi. But every Nabi is not Rasul. Rasul has a special mission, a special message. Nabi can preach the Rasala, the message of another prophet. But Rasul has a message, has a sharia or a book or some message from God. So, among 313 Rasul, out of 124,000 prophets, out of billions of human beings, there are five who are the select of the select. What we call them? Ulul Az, the people of determination. 
What does it mean? It means that the key to greatest success of these five has been having great willpower and determination. If they realize something is good, they had such a strength in power that they did it despite all the difficulties and challenges. No one could shake them. No one could make them surrender or give in. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Wasbir kama sabara ulul azmi min rusul Be patient, exercise patience as those ulul azmi min rusul those messengers who were ulul azmi, who had determination, they also did so. They also were patient. And you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he wants to explain the situation of Adam and what was the weakness in Adam. What does Allah say? Allah says we didn't find azm in Adam. We didn't find determination in Adam. So when Allah says these are ulul azm, in a sense, it's like Teasing Adam. Adam didn't have azm. Didn't have that determination. So we will talk about knowledge of the prophets, about willpower of the prophets, about infallibility of the prophets. What is esma? All Muslims believe in the esma of the prophets, but to a certain extent. Normally, Non-Shia believed that the prophets were infallible, but only in the delivery of the message, in tabligh, in ada'ur risala, they were infallible. But when it comes to their personal life, some of them say they may have committed minor sins. Some of them say they may have committed unintentional sins. And when it comes to the period before becoming a prophet, they don't say it's necessary to be ma'asum before becoming a prophet. A prophet may have uh, worshipped idols, may have committed sins before becoming a prophet. They don't see a problem in this. But the Shia believe that the prophets were infallible, not only in delivery of message, but also in the personal life. If a prophet in his personal life commits unintentional sins or commits major sins or, or forgets things or makes mistakes, then this would create too much of uncertainty and people would not be able to trust such person 100%. Or if a person was committing a sin in the past of worshipping idol, we feel that he would not have that level of purity that is needed in order to receive revelation. Inshallah, we'll talk about all these things. We will talk about the meaning of revelation, different types of receiving revelation, why Allah has sent many prophets, why Allah has sent different books, what is the relation between different religions, the idea of abrogation or nasq. We will all <coughs> discuss all these things. And the other thing is miracles, about mu'jizah. You know, prophets had brought miracles so that people can 100% trust them and realize that this person speaks on behalf of God. This is not 
a liar. This is not a person who is just a genius person and is now claiming to be sent by God. They brought something called mu'ajaza or miracle, which proved that no one can do this unless he is supported and backed up by God. Then we will enter into the next unit, which is about the Prophet of Islam. After talking about the prophethood in general, and nubuwatul ammah, then we will focus on and nubuwatul khasa, that is the specific prophethood of Prophet of Islam. There is a discussion about the personality of the Prophet, about the Quran as his miracle. Of course, the Prophet had different miracles, but the main miracle of the Prophet was the Quran. Why a text? Why words this is very important why allah gave different miracles to different prophets the answer is it was depending on their age there was a time that the most important thing for some people was magic so allah gave musa salam a miracle that was suitable to that age and proved that the power of Musa, which comes from God, is greater than any magician's work. In the time of Isa, السلام, medicine was very important. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala demonstrated through the miracles of Jesus that this is even greater than medicine. No doctor was able to revive a dead, to give life to a statue. To make people who were always unable to see, able to see. So the doctors themselves were accepting that this is not medicine. The magicians accepted that this was not a magic. When it comes to the time of Islam, the words, the poem, the text were very important. And Arabs were at the peak of eloquence at that time. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave prophet a mu'ajiza that proved to those people who were the best in Arabic proved that this is not word of a human being and they had no choice either to accept or if they didn't want to accept they had to say this is magic or for example you know prophet is mad uh, so they didn't have any logical answer if a person who is mad can say things like this, why you in people who are not mad, you cannot all together produce something like this. Anyway, we'll talk about the Quran as a mu'jiz of the Prophet and different aspects of miraculous nature of the Quran. Then we'll talk about seal of prophethood, khatmul nubuwa, why the line of prophecy stopped at some point, and then how successorship to the prophet uh, took place and here we only raise the question the question of who should succeed the prophet we would say sunnis have this idea shia have this idea the answer can be understood from another book the book on imama so here we don't go into the answer the next unit is about the hereafter so we should also know that for us this world is not the only world that exists 
And this physical life is not the only life that we have. We are going through different stages of life, greater than the physical life that we have today. And the fact that what we do today would also determine the type of life we are going to have after we die and then on the Day of Judgment. So we need to talk about the hereafter in this unit, unit six. So we prove the resurrection. We will bring argument, two arguments for showing that there must be another life. And then what is the relation between this world and the hereafter? What is the nature of death? What is Barzakh? And what would ju be judged on the Day of Judgment? And the last unit is about salvation or felicity or happiness or Sa'adah. If we follow the guidance that God has provided us with, what would be the outcome in this life and the eternal life? So we will talk about the happiness of individuals in this world and the hereafter and happiness of the people collectively, the society which follows the path of faith, which follows the guidance of God, even the society would be happy and prosperous, not just the individuals. So if individuals follow this line, they will be happy. But if societies, if nations also follow, we would have then greater happiness. You can be a person who is a mu'min, but if the society is full of corruption and injustice, your happiness in dunya at least would be limited. But if all people together observe the guidance from God, we would have no injustice, we would have no poverty, we would have no worries of war, of killing, and so on and so forth. So this unit, which is the unit seven, talks about happiness of individuals in this world and the hereafter, and also societies. So this is a brief outline of the book, Islamic Belief System. And inshallah, from next week, we will start unit two, which is about knowing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I will have, inshallah, an introduction about ma'rifatullah, about knowing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, different types of ma'rifah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then we will start with the first argument for the existence of God. So please make sure that you read the first unit and first few pages of unit two for the next session. وآخر دعوانا أن الحمد لله رب العالمين.